Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Troy, and I'm one of the leaders here, part of our Kalebrook family. I want to welcome you uh, again to gathering uh, that we have here in West Bend. We also gather in Jackson, and um, we are finishing up a series this morning called uh, God Is. We've been going through Psalm 103. And as we begin, I want to share an illustration with you. It's an illustration that uh, I got from a book that I'm reading right now called The Drama of Scripture. And in this book, they open up with an illustration referencing another book called After Virtue by a guy named Alistair McIntyre. You don't need to know all that. I'm just trying to quote it appropriately. Um, Alistair McIntyre tells this story. He says, imagine yourself at a bus stop, which may be a little bit difficult for us. Uh, in West Bay, don't, uh, probably not at the bus stop a lot, but maybe. Imagine yourself at a bus stop, and a man comes up to you, and he says, the name of the common wild duck is Histrionicus, Histrionicus, Histrionicus. You're like, what is going on? The meaning of the sentence is clear enough. And yet, what in the world is this guy talking about? The authors say, this conversation can only be understood if placed in a broader framework of meaning or a bigger story that makes sense of it. And he gives three potential narratives to make his point. So in potential narrative number one, here's what we have. The man who comes up to you and says, the name of the common wild duck is Histrionicus, 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 is a man who he's mistaken you for someone that he thought he saw yesterday, or he saw yesterday at the library, and that came up to him and asked him, hey, by chance do you know the Latin name of the common duck? Now, does that make sense? That makes sense, okay? That's potential narrative number one. Potential narrative number two, the man who came up to you and said this had just come from a session with his psychotherapist. Um, who's helping to deal with his extreme uh, introvertedness, and the therapist urges him to talk to strangers. And the man says, well, what do I say? And the therapist says, anything at all. Which, by the way, uh, you should probably get a new therapist because that's horrible advice. Uh, You were set up to fail. Anyway, so he goes and says this, and now that makes some context, right? There's a little bit more context around his shyness. Potential narrative number three. The man who came up to you and said this is a Russian spy who was trying to meet his contact at the bus stop at this exact time. And there was a phrase which with, with which he would identify himself to his contact. And the phrase was the, the name of the contact is histrionicus. histrionicus. So, so you get this, right? See, see, without this context, the guy's comments make absolutely no sense. And those who are leveraging this illustration say this. The meaning of the encounter at the bus stop depends on which story shapes it. In fact, each story gives the event a different meaning. This is also true of human life. In order to make sense of our lives, we depend on some story. Some story provides a broader framework of meaning for every part of our lives. Now, to give you a more practical, uh, concrete example that I've experienced, just uh, about a month and a half ago, was roped into being a coach for my, one of my son's uh, flag football teams. So I had the first night of practice. There was 10 uh, third and fourth grade boys there. And I, I recognized that one of the boys was really struggling to, to make a pass and to make a catch. Okay, he was really not, it's like he had not known at all what he was doing per se at that time. And so I, it, for a second in my mind, I've coached enough at this age level to kind of go, okay, I have a story that might frame why this is the case. Perhaps it's that his parents want him to play football, but he doesn't want to play football, and so he's there. And I thought that maybe for a second. I was like, well, whatever. I'm just going to keep coaching. And what was amazing was happening at the same time was my amazing wife was over on the sidelines and she was asking about, uh, she was just learning to meet the parents. 
and getting to know them and got to know the story of this boy's mom. And this boy's mom uh, shared that she had been married and um, her husband was in active military duty and five years ago he was killed. And so this boy, who had no longer had a father, didn't have anyone to pass the football to him, had never been able to, th- to have someone to show how to throw or how to catch. Does that not reframe that? Right? And so it reframed it in such a way that, that I was like, okay, that, that obviously, what I did was I said, hey, would you mind coming a little earlier to practice, uh, maybe half an hour, I want to just throw to your son. And in fact, it's what framed me to say, hey, why don't you come earlier and I'll show you, mom, how to throw a football so you can play with your son. She'd never been thro- shown how to throw a football and she could do it. Now, I would hope that I actually would have done that regardless of the story that was behind what was going on. But man, you hear those stories and it frames, it frames how we act and understand who we are. McIntyre says this, we can only answer the question, what do I do? After we answer the first question, what story do I find myself to be a part of? As we conclude our series on God is, these are some of the questions I would like to us, for us to wrestle through. What story, what grand narrative do you believe that your life is a part of? What broader context or framework is shaping who you are and what you do? And I will say this confidently. How you understand who God is or who God is not will influence what you believe about who you are and what you do. So we're looking looking at this together. Psalm 103 is going to be on page 428, I believe, on this next slide. Uh, Psalm 103 was written by David. David, that's King David, uh, King of Israel, who is also David of David and Goliath. And uh, what we see is over the past three weeks we've seen David share the narrative of how he understands who God is in his story. And, And that narrative is shaped by the fact that God he describes as forgiving. God is compassionate. And last week, Ryan talked about God as Father. This last week, as we read these last four verses, we're going to see that David makes it abundantly clear that God is King. That God is King. So we're going to read just the last four verses, verses 19 through 22. And before I do that, I'm going to pray. Why don't you stand for both of those things with me? Father, as we read these words, we are grateful for them as they help to shape the framework of us understanding who you are. More than anything that I am about to say, Father, what we are about to read, may these words do the work that you promised they would and not return void. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, O my soul. This is God's word. You can have a seat. Now, as I mentioned, this is the end of the psalm. David has a lot more to say here. You can go back and read it. But he's writing in these last four verses again. He writes about God as king. And I think it's really interesting that David writes about God as king because he's one of the few uh, men throughout history that can actually do that. How many of you have been king? Yeah, that's what I thought. So we're not kings. David was writing as a king who actually had established a throne. 
And he says, here's God. God has established his throne above the heavens. And he's like, there's no end to it, okay? David was a man who knew he had a kingdom. He had established his kingdom, but it had actually boundaries. Here we got a picture of it. This is roughly the Davidic kingdom. And David knew very well where the bounds of his kingdom were, where his kingdom began and where it ended. And David, in his story, the story he understands himself in, he understands that he worships a God who has a throne and a kingdom that's over all. Okay? God doesn't have sovereignty over certain realms, just certain realms like Hades had, you know, realm of the underworld, and Poseidon was realm of the water, right? And Aquaman. No, sorry. So, so it wasn't like that. God didn't have borders to his jurisdiction. Okay? His kingdom rules over all. Some of you may have heard this past week um, here in West Bend, our mayor, Craig Zidonico, he's been the mayor since 2011. He, he resigned from his post as mayor. And the reason that he did that is because not only is he the mayor, he's also the owner of a construction company. And there's a big development that's happening downtown. And he recognized, hey, I can't wear both of these hats at the same time uh, w- without potentially having a conflict of interest. And so he, he respectfully resigned from his post. And regardless of what you think about any of that, I tell that story to say that's not how God works. God doesn't have like, hey, I can, I can rule over here, but then I'm not sure about over here and how that works. There's no conflict of interest in the character of God because he is perfectly just and merciful. He's perfectly loving and wrathful. He's perfectly relational and sovereign. These things work together because his character is perfect. There's no outer realm to his dominion or domain. He's not like he's like Mufasa telling Simba, everything that the light touches, Simba. Okay, he, he, you know, except that dark realm over there. You know, no, he's like, no. There's no borders to his sovereignty. And so it's no surprise that David says, Praise the Lord, all you his angels and all the heavenly host. Now, when we, we think about David saying this word praise, I need to back up a few weeks, three weeks. When I opened this series up, we talked about the word praise. It also means bless. And more literally, what does that word mean? Do you remember? Oh, this is one of the most encouraging things a teacher can hear. Absolute silence. Somebody help me. Do you remember? If I went like this, would this help? Knee, right? Bless, knee, kneel. I know you, you don't have any more hair on your knees, right, for the last three weeks. Hopefully you've been working that hair off there. We've been praising God together, right? David says, praise the Lord, all you angels. Now, I've got to do a little time out here and talk about angels. we just got to clear this up. I think we say it every time. Every time I talk about angels, I want to clear it up. Angels are not cute, chubby babies. Can you just say, okay? Okay, angels are not cute, chubby babies. When, when people in Scripture saw an angel, they didn't go, oh. They went, ah. Oh! Okay, because they're like these majestic creatures who serve God, do his will, obey his word, do his bidding. These majestic creatures, David says, even these majestic creatures, they're in the presence of God. They just need to praise him, all you hosts. And David's like, hey, I've even established a kingdom. I am a king. I sit on a throne and even I must praise the Lord. Verse 22 says, praise him, all his works, everywhere in his dominion, lots of superlatives, every, all, every, all, praise him. There's no place where God's dominion doesn't exist. It's interesting, when Jesus came on the scene, 
one of the first things that Jesus said was he says, hey, the kingdom is near. And then he told story and parable and story and parable and story and parable that began with these words. The kingdom is like. The kingdom is like. Because he kept pointing to a kingdom and a king. In fact, this book I'm reading, uh, The Drama of Scripture, Finding Our Place in the Biblical Story, they're like, this is the drama of Scripture. This is the whole story. If you want to know it, it has to be framed in light of a king and a kingdom. Here's the, here's the layout of this book. Act 1, God establishes his kingdom. Act 2, rebellion in the kingdom. Act 3, God chooses Israel. 4, interlude. That's the intertestamental period between New and Old Testaments. A kingdom story waiting for an ending. Act 4, the coming of the king. Act 5, spreading the news of the king. Act 6, the return of the king. This is a story David understood his story in and our story as well. Now, David lived in Act 3. We live in Act 5. But what's interesting about this is I think there is an element, if we're really honest, there's an element of us that says, wait a minute, Troy, if God has established, as David said, if he's established his kingdom and established his throne, then why do some of the things happen that they do? Like, why is there suffering, Troy, as it is? Why is there poverty and oppression? Heck, Troy, why are there natural disasters? Why is there disease and illness and death? Because, I mean, if God's sovereign, then this, is this part of his kingdom? Those are questions I think we have to be re- we honest with and wrestle with. But as we wrestle with them, I want to I talk first about why I think some of these things exist. And we'll come back to that. I spent the majority of my childhood years growing up on a dairy farm. Some of you know that. Um, we had two, two barns. The one barn is the main barn. That's the milking barn. That's where all the cows were. Uh, they stayed there. It's like a cow hotel. Okay, a little barn. Anyway... There was another barn that we had. It was called the heifer barn. Okay, and the heifer barn is not the same as the cow barn. The heifer barn is where the heifers go. And some of you are maybe not familiar with cows or whatever, so you're like, I don't know what a heifer is. Let me tell you what a heifer is. A heifer is a teenage cow. So if you can combine the word teenager and the stupidest animal you can imagine, that's what you've got, a heifer. It's dumb animals, but they're teenagers. Anyway, heifer barn was where the heifers were. They were underneath and the bottom and then the top was called what's called a hay mow. And we'd make hay three, four crops a year. And uh, one of those crops we would bale into square bales. They're about this big, some twine on there. Bales would come in in the wagons. We'd take them off, throw them on what's called an elevator. The elevator would go up, drop the bales down to the floor. And then you would, we would begin what's kind of like Tetris, okay, with these, with these rectangle bales. You'd bale them. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you have no idea, so I'm trying to give you a picture. So uh, square or rectangle, rectangle. And you'd build this thing up until it was two and a half stories high, maybe three stories high of bales. There's just a giant cube of, of bales that would then be fed to the heifers over the year. And what was so cool is when that season came, you're three stories up, you could climb up this ladder, and you ha- and I had the coolest fort that you could imagine, right? I mean, the, the hay mile, you could, if you want to build a tunnel in there, you build a tunnel. You want to build a couch, you make a couch. You want to make a little room, make a room, Right? So I had this amazing fort, and some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, let me ask you this question. Raise your hand if at some point in your life you had a fort. Raise your hand if you had some fort of some kind. See, all of you are raising your hands. Now, someone. Patty, where was your fort? Sheets and furniture in your house. Yeah, thank you. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. That's, you, know what I'm t- you know what Patty's talking about. You can make anything into a fort with a sheet. Okay, what else? Who else we got? Jim, how about you? 
Where's your fort? The same. Excellent. You didn't have a hay mow, right? Okay, here we go. What else? What else do we got? Who's back there? I don't see him. Yeah, where's your fort? Pillow fort? No, no. Okay, I'm sorry. I can't hear you. Tell me. Talk to me. You made it in the woods with sticks. Who? Come on. Who's done that, right? You put the woods up, the sticks against the trees. All of a sudden you got... Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Now, my children are like Patty. They don't have a hay mow. They got furniture and blankets. And so we take our, our uh, basement and make that thing into a fort. Okay. Now, Chloe has these gymnastics mats. So at the later house, this serves as one of the primary, primary foundations for the fort. Okay. You set this up. You put a blanket over here, right, Patty? Right, Jim? Blanket over this. And you look for your little brothers. Right? You know what I'm talking about. Okay? Now, what's, what's interesting is that you can ask people a lot of questions. This is a question I think you all raise your hands on. One of the reasons we love forts so much is because we, from a very early age on, we tell ourselves a story. And that story is that we like to have a domain. We like to have a dominion. We like to have a kingdom. We're the king and we're the queen. And so we create that. This is one of the things that we do. Now what we do now is we kind of chuckle. We're like, oh, man, you remember when we were a kid? We used to do that. That's so funny. Look at this. These are gymnastics mats. But it's really not that funny because it, has, it doesn't change when you grow up. It doesn't change. You know what happens. Our forts, they just get bigger. They just get more elaborate. They just take longer to build. But we build them. Maybe there are careers. Maybe there are, it's our home. Or even better, homes. Maybe it's our reputation. Maybe it's our, our sports or our health or our body image. Maybe it's our children, our toys, or our hobbies. We could go on. But we, we can move these things around. We can change the bales around. We can do whatever. But when we're in here, we are king and we are queen. And see, this, folks, this is what happened from the beginning and it's what happens to this day. Because in the beginning, God created and he had this vast expanse of this amazing garden and he gave it to his created ones adam and eve and they had run of the entire place with one exception he's like hey there's one tree i would like to be outside your domain and they just couldn't deal with it and they had to grasp for that and they did it's like the garden wasn't big enough and so they were kicked out of the garden And ever since, we've been doing this. We've been building our forts, trying to reestablish our own little kingdoms, our domains, our dominions. Before King David, there was this book in Scripture called Judges. It's a time period before there was uh, kings, there was judges. And you could sum up the entire book of Judges, this whole period of time, with the last sentence of the book. Here's what it says. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Sometimes people say, you know, Troy, the Bible is so outdated. (laughs) Tell me this isn't the story today. Tell me it's that different. We still want to do what is right in our own eyes. We still want to do as we see fit consistently. 
at home, at work, even on the road, in the classroom, on the field. And we do this because we tell ourselves a different story, a story where we're sovereign and we establish our own thrones. Now, there are significant downsides to this being our story, where this is, this is our story, we write ourselves, and this is our kingdom. There's a, couple, there's a couple I want to go through now. One significant downside to this is that when you are king of your domain, when you are queen of your dominion, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. It's stressful. It's tiring. To try to maintain control of, of, of your kingdom gives us anxiety at times. It causes us to, to, to be massively stressed out. Because it's like, whoa, I, I, I don't know, is some, someone moving my stuff around here? Well, no, no, no. Okay? When Jesus said, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, he meant a lot of things, I think, by that. But one of the things I think he meant was he was like, hey, um, that, is that crown heavy that you're trying to wear? Can I have it? Because I'm really supposed to be wearing it anyway. Come to me. I'll show you a better kingdom. I'll show you a better way. The other significant downside to this approach of understanding our framework of life is this. It's actually one of the reasons why we have so much suffering. is because when we have our own little kingdoms, we have our own forts that we build, and we're in here, okay, what we do is we see everyone else as a threat. Hey, you're getting kind of close. I put my walls up. Everyone's waiting to coup. I know it's just a coup waiting to happen. Tiffany, are you trying to coup me right now? Okay. This is what we do. And so we get defensive and we fight one another. Try to take more area of control. Make sure no one takes our stuff. Our control, this is, this is a huge, that's why there's so much suffering and oppression in this world because of us fighting for dominion, not just, not just against God, but against one, one another. This is what happens. When, when, when someone doesn't recognize the sovereignty of our state, we're offended. You need to acknowledge the king of this kingdom. It's me. I'll give you an example of this. Uh, offense. About a month ago, there was a, a championship um, a soccer qualifying match in Europe between France and Albania. Here we've got the, the Albanian soccer team. And so just like any other match that happens, uh, what do you do? First thing you do is you get the players lined up, and now what do you think they're doing there? They're waiting for the national anthem. Yeah, so you're going to play the national anthem. And so France was hosting, and so they were waiting for the national anthem, and then France played their national anthem, except the problem was the song they played was the Andorran national anthem. You're like, is Andorra a country? Yes, it is. It's a country, and it's different than Albania. So they played the wrong national anthem. So the, the, the Albanian fans who were there were just in an uproar, right, because they're playing the wrong song. And the, the players say, hey, we're not even going to take the field until you play the Albanian national anthem. Now, to, to help smooth things over, the MC, the guy who's got the mic over the whole stadium, says, oh, we'd like to uh, apologize to the Armenian fans. Please be respectful while we take time to listen to the Armenian National Anthem. Now, I don't know if you know this or not. Armenia is not the same country as Albania or Andorra. And so uh, there's an offense 
Why? Because part of part of their identity is, hey, here's our country. We're part of this. This is part of our domain. It's part of our identity. And there's an offense. We're playing the wrong. You're playing the wrong song, calling us the wrong names. There's an offense to that. And that family, that doesn't just happen at a national level. It happens at, it happens at an individual level. I have a friend named Keith. He he owns a couple of businesses in town. I just saw on Facebook he posted, uh, I think yesterday, someone had sent a thank you note to him because he had done something as as a business owner. And it said, Dear Kevin. And he was laughing because he's like, how many times do I get called Kevin? He's like, it happens all the time. Now, he's not being vindictive, I think, or even passive aggressive. He's just laughing about it. But there is a part. There's a part of what's going on. He's like, my name's not Kevin. It's Keith. There's something in us that is inherently offended when our domain is not honored, when our name is not honored for what it is. And I think it's because inherently we were made to be identified with a domain. We were made to be given a name. The domain was the kingdom of God and the name was beloved. But we have exchanged, we forfeited that identity for a lesser one. And ever since, we've been trying to reestablish our forts and our kingdoms. But it doesn't have to be this way. In verse 22, David writes, Praise the Lord all His works. And this word works is also translated as workmanship. Now, I don't think it's any coincidence that a thousand years later, when the Apostle Paul wrote to the church, he used the word workmanship. Here's what he said. He said, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are God's workmanship. We are to praise God. He had prepared these things for us to be and to do in advance. It's part of the story, the framework of our story. It is the framework of our story. So going back, I want you to imagine yourself back at the bus stop. And a man doesn't come up to you and say histrionicus stuff, okay? A man comes up to you and he says this, this phrase. He says, praise the Lord, O my soul. And so you go like this. Like, what is the context for him to say that? Give me one minute to tell you the context. Long ago, there was a king with a kingdom who was a creator king. His creation was good, and his creation was created to bless him and praise him and and enjoy him. Because he was the only one worthy of their praise. And they did, but not for long. Soon they rejected their king for no other reason than they wanted to assume the throne themselves. And so the king cast them from his kingdom but promised as he did that he would make a way back for them. In the meanwhile, they went around establishing their own little forts and their own little kingdoms, always fighting for territory, always fighting for affirmation, always fighting for power, receiving none of it, and never being content, always at war, both within and without. Until the king, who promised he would make a way back, came back, to show them the way and to make the way. But they rejected him again. This time they killed him. But what they didn't realize was that it was precisely his death that was the only way back into his kingdom. 
where his life was exchanged for theirs, where his obedience was exchanged for their rebellion. And one by one, his creation began to discover this truth. And as they discovered this truth, they took these down. And they recognized again that they were part of a bigger, grander kingdom with a perfect king who was actually at the throne. And when they recognized this, they had this phrase they kept saying to themselves and to others. And it was this phrase, Praise the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord, O my inmost being. Praise the Lord, bless His name. If you're here today, This is your story. Whether you know that or not, this is a story, the grand context that your story is meant to be a part of. If you're here today and you know that, that should then influence everything about who you see, who you are, and how you respond to everything about what you do. When, Peter, when Jesus asked Peter, he says, Peter, who do you say that I am? I don't think it was a test. I think Jesus was saying, here's an absolutely essential question that everyone has to answer. Who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ. That means the anointed king. And there is an answer if he asks you, who do you say that I am? Which he does. And your answer, the only true answer is, you're the king. You're the king of kings. You're here and you're like, but again, what about that sovereignty? If he's sovereign over things, he's established his throne. The wise are suffering and oppression and pain and even natural disasters, Troy. Why? Great question. God said, I'm going to come and prove my sovereignty over these things. I'm going to show you. And so Jesus came and he healed. And Jesus came and he fought oppression. And Jesus came and he walked on water, calmed storms brought dead people back to life. Say, this is my power. This is the real king of the real kingdom. And so, as a family, there's really, I think, one thing we need to do and recognize to do, and it's to begin and end the song as David does. Praise the Lord, O my soul. It's how he begins and it's how he ends. Now, there's been four things that were put on my heart this week for us to wrestle through in light of this text. I want to give you four of them, and then we're going to, we're going to just listen to God for two or three minutes, and then we're going to sing one more song. First one, what is the framework of your story? What's the broader framework? If someone says, what is the narrative that frames how you live and who you are, how would you answer that question? You all have one. You all have one. How would you answer it? Number two, for those of you who understand yourself within the framework of God's story like David did, how are you living in light of that? Ryan talked last week about God being Father. If we see He's Father and He's King, I don't know if you understand what that means, but if God is our Father and our King, that means that we are royalty, that we are co-heirs with Christ, that we are princes and princesses in the kingdom meant to steward and point to the true King. How well are we living that out? And how well are we asking others and listening to others' stories so they may understand and be pointed to that story as well? Third, I'll put these back up. 
In what areas of your life are you still doing this? In what areas of your life are you still doing this? Saying, yeah, okay, God, you can have this part, but not this part. This part's, I got this. In fact, in what ways are you still building forts? Jesus says, there's a better way. There's a better kingdom. And lastly, whose anthem are you singing? Are you singing with your life, praise the Lord, O my soul? Or are you saying, hey, how do I get people to sing my praises? How do I make much of me? These are things that have been convicting me this week in this text. My prayer is that it would convict you as well. So I'm going to pray. I want you to spend um, two or three minutes just reflecting on this, letting the Spirit of God speak to you directly. And then the music team is going to lead us in one more song. Why don't we do Rising Sun? Can we do that as we close? Is that all right, Beck? Okay. Uh, Father, we come before you and we are so thankful that we can call you Father and we can call you King. We are thankful that you sent your Son to show us the way, to make the way back into your kingdom. Father, we confess, we confess that as your created ones, we are constantly trying to fight against your sovereignty. We just are. Lord, humble us, remind us of who's truly King. Father, place on our lips a song that we were made to sing, which is to praise you. Just like the angels, just like all the heavenly hosts, just like all your works, all your creation is meant to praise you, Father. May we do that instead of fighting for territories of tiny, fake kingdoms we're trying to make for ourselves. There's no freedom in those. Father, show us freedom that we can receive in your Son, Jesus Christ, as we understand that He is the answer. He is the key to understanding our entire framework, our entire lives, who we are and what we do. Speak to us now by your Spirit, Father. In Christ's name, amen.